0: Hello everybody, this is Randy Wooten, CEO of Maxio and your host of SaaS Expert Voices, the podcast that brings the SaaS experts to you to help us understand where we are today and what's happening tomorrow. Today, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Brian Pell. Uh, it's great to have you, Brian. Um, your background is so interesting in terms of starting off in finance, moving to product management, having exposure to big companies like Microsoft and Amazon. And then we've had the good fortune of working together at Rocket Fuel. Uh, but then you took this really interesting turn uh, to become an investor and focus in early stage startups. And so I think we're excited to chat with you about a lot of things in the, with the world of finance, fintech, yeah. the office of the CFO, but I think it'd be really interesting if you could spend a little time talking about your journey, specifically that transition from operator, product
1: manager to investor. Thank you so much, Randy, for having me. It's good to see you again. Um yeah, it's it's been a long journey, right? I I uh, I think if I reflect, I I grew up uh, quite poor and worked full time in college, worked really hard, got to Wall Street, got the CFA, the whole thing, and then I kind of washed out. I was like, I I don't like this. It was really disillusioning, and it, it had to take a long hard look in the mirror and be like, Why am I here? What am I doing? And washed out. I was teaching high school math actually in the Bronx, of all places. I was oh teaching- wow!
0: When was this? Was this two thousand six, your-
1: seven? Yeah. Uh huh. So after your financial analysts? Yeah, after my little stint at um, Wall Street. Uh-huh. And I just kind of started wandering around jobs. You know, some jobs uh-huh. I'd had for like three days, three weeks, three months. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and I, I would just keep trying things. And um, I remember I was like, I was really into music at the time. So I was interning at a, a music studio. I, I thought I'd be like a sound engineer or something like that. I mean, I literally tried everything. I was doing biz ops at a design studio. Um <laughs> I've I've literally wandered in and out of careers. I've done just about every kind of functional role you can do. Um, it makes me kind of unemployable, uh, but uh, I think a good investor. And I, I kept asking myself this question and I anybody who knows me is like tired of hearing this, but like, what would you do if you had 10, 10 million in the bank, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you had 20 million in the bank, what would you do? Yeah. And th- that kind of guided me through the rest of my career. And it took me about 15 years to transition into being a early stage investor in startups. But I just kept pivoting into better and better things along the way. You yeah. know, first it was uh, before I got into product; it was actually marketing demand gen. Uh, I thought, you know, after a little short stint in sales, I was like, you know what? I th- I think marketing's the place to be. It's more scientific and, and fun. Yeah. And after a f- few years of doing that at a couple of startups, I realized that you have to change the product if you're going to change the outcome of the company. Um, mm. And so I pivoted into, into being a PM and. Uh, I think Rocket Fuel is actually my second PM job. So I got warmed mm-hmm. up before I came to Rocket Fuel. Mm-hmm. And then I remember being way in over my head. I mean, we had 30 PhDs on staff. Uh, yeah. Very big data, 150 billion bid requests a day, just lots of yeah. state-of-the-art AI and big data systems. And I remember at night going home and spending two or three hours working through CS coursework trying to like just keep up. Um, yeah, And then yeah. The, you know, I always thought I'd climb the ranks of products. So I got an MBA at Berkeley and, um, right. you know, I saw your uh,
0: case study on Rocket Fuel. Yeah. Proving that online advertising works. I mean, well, the fun thing about Rocket Fuel. So this, I joined in 2000 and I guess it must have been 2012, to 2015, if that's right. No, that's when I was at Salesforce. I it was joined 16, in 2015. Actually. Yeah. yeah. 15, 16, somewhere in there. Yeah and uh, Rocket Fuel was real AI. I mean, I remember back then it was a lot of marketing (laughs) companies that had marketing around AI and that was the first gen AI. Say a little bit more about that, your experience of what I'm calling the first generation of AI predictive analytics and we built all of those data centers and we had those 30 PhDs on staff. I mean, it was this enormous investment to be able to access the power of AI, which is absolutely transformed today in terms of generative AI. But maybe give a little background on your experience as a product manager at a a
1: real AI company. Well, I think it was a lot of um, trying to figure out what our capabilities were, what our customers needed. Um, Yeah. And I remember at Rocket Fuel, I built quite a few things that nobody used. (laughs) <laughs> it was like it, it was like a, this is a really good idea. Like yeah, and yeah. and, and the customers are asking for this. Yeah, yeah, we we have so many people want this. And then so we'd go spend you know six months building out some new ad tech product. You know like geo audiences yeah. was one thing that I worked on where we take all the uh, the lat long coordinates coming in on the bid requests and then we create audiences based on where they were and, and space yeah. and time and and then to fall and that was mildly successful and. And they're like, you know, it'd be cool. What if we could like go back and like capture people at the Super Bowl last year? I'm like, okay, we'll call that time machine. So we go build that. And like, of course, like all these things like struck out, right? Yeah. They generated maybe a million of revenue, 500k of revenue. I was like, yeah, so I learned, I learned a lot about, you know, it's not just about the tech, but it's really about the customer needs. And, yeah, And really understanding, is this a problem that's pervasive with lots of friction that people will try to solve it twice a day, every day? Yeah. Um. and pay pay you for it to solve it. And it's a, it's a really big pain point versus like, oh, this is just really cool and we should build it. <laughs> yeah, it's the whole uh, aspirin versus
0: vitamin, the idea of product market fit. And as we transition to talk about your investment strategy, you know, how have all these lessons learned inform the type of companies you look to invest in. But OK, so at Rocket Fuel, I think one of the challenges with Rocket Fuel for me as well was we were so far out in front with the technology. So customers don't even really know what they want at that point. So I do think Part of what you were and the team are doing was we're doing these experiments, these fast twitch experiments to see what would stick. And so some of that, uh, how do you think about the core Horizon One products that are going to generate your revenue this year versus the Horizon Three, which are informing um, where the where the industry is going? And I think that's uh, how do you think about that as a product manager and looking back on your on your success in terms of your allocation of headspace or or allocation of effort? in terms of the things you're building that customers want that they're going to pay for you for today versus those things that uh, because you're so steeped in the specific industry and the problem set, you're you're on the horizon, right? You're helping define yeah. what's possible.
1: Yeah, and I, th- I think that's right. I think the that three horizon kind of approach makes a lot of sense. There's the stuff that you can do in the next six months and then there's the stuff you can do in the next couple of years and then there's kind of the long long-term multi-year kind of projects. And I think... Innovation's messy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you have ideas about what your customers want. What struck me when I, when I joined Rocket Fuel as a PM, because I came from uh, another startup that was much smaller. We had this roadmap and I'm like, okay, great. What kind of customer validation have we done? Mm-hmm. I was like, what are you talking about? Like the product marketing people are telling us what to do. Okay, great. So mm-hmm. who's telling them what to do? Oh, the mm-hmm. sales people are telling them what to do. Okay, mm-hmm. great. So the salespeople are talking to the customers and then they're telling the product marketing people who are telling us what to build. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we should go probably just talk to the customers directly and watch them work in the product and figure out, yeah. you know, what their actual problems are. And so we have a lot of customer empathy, and we can build the right yeah. things and get out of yeah. the building, as Steve Blank would say. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is is that is is figuring out what's the highest value, most pervasive pain that you can solve for your customer over those horizons, right? Because some things yeah. do take a sprint, and and sometimes they take years. Yeah,
0: that's great. Any other thoughts about Rocket Fuel? The thing that's mind boggling to me is like, we had 23 data centers, we were processing bids in less than a 10th of a millisecond, meaning we were evaluating a bid opportunity. And then we were determining not just which advertiser should bid, but how much they should bid at that point and what i remember was we were able to demonstrate results that were three or four times better than just regular bid strategies run by agencies with media planners and buyers and so it was a real example for me of the distinction between putting people out of jobs so the terminator view of ai Mm. versus if not the jetsons more of an augmented intelligence we even changed our marketing to be about not artificial intelligence but augmented intelligence and making media planning and buying smarter. And I think that revolution is what we're seeing today in generative AI, where every function is having to use uh, AI to make them better. And if you're not practicing or playing with it, you're gonna get uh, disintermediated. Back when we were working in rocket fuel, it was such a big problem and you had to have these you know really smart people building the models for you to run it that we needed a whole team i think it was another 30 people under doug who were doing they were acting as analysts on behalf of the clients so you right. had this super powerful technology that had to be enabled with technology with a with a excuse me with people almost like a a buffer between the technology and the client, but today in this new world of AI, you as a client or you as a media planner, you as a marketer are directly accessing the tools. So I don't know if you had any thoughts more about just the context of what it meant to use AI or the impact
1: of AI back then versus- Yeah. Both. Well, I think you see this play out throughout history, right? Um, the Jevons paradox in economics, where there's automation that comes into an industry and they're like, oh my gosh, sky's falling. Everybody's gonna lose their jobs. We're all gonna just be sitting around doing drugs uh, on the streets and, you know, like everything's <laughs> going to hell in a handbasket. Hand and you know, it turns out the sky's not falling. When you decrease the input costs in an industry, it actually uh, paradoxically makes the the demand for that good go up uh, right. more than de- the decrease in the cost. And right. I think you saw this in ad tech uh, over yeah. the last, you know, 20 years, it's bigger than ever. Right. And yeah. it's gotten cheaper than ever to run and, and more efficient than ever. So and i think we see this play out like, time and time again with technologies throughout the ages. Yeah,
0: i, I think you're at, you're right. One of the stories i tell so i joined online advertising. Well, the, the funny story is i came out of business school and there were three three business models that were making money in the internet at the time. Porn, gambling and advertising. <laughs> and i you know A lot of funny stories on
1: on the, the the red
0: rope. I've heard yeah. I've heard about this red rope area at the Totally. And so I got into advertising. And at the time, uh, I think our TAM was about a billion bucks. And this wow. was digital advertising. And this was Avenue a at Quantive. And I think uh, TV TAM, I need to go look this up, but I think it was like 20 billion or something. It was yeah, yeah. huge compared Much to us. Much bigger. And yeah. we never thought that we would ever compete with tv and now digital advertising has surpassed tv and total tam and the digital transformation has played out but to your point the tam has continued to get bigger and uh just the innovation has continued at a faster and faster pace it's just mind-boggling yeah uh, well, great. Well, that, you know, a little bit trip down memory lane and it was a lot of fun working with you there and then staying in touch and following your career since then. And you've made this transition to Team Ignite. You want to maybe just bring us up to speed in terms of, OK, so you're mm. trying to figure out what do you do if you have $10 million in the bank? You've you've tried all these different <laughs> professions, but you yeah. end up coming back as an investor. What What drove you to that and what is the thesis of Team Ignite
1: versus yeah. some of the
0: other folks that are in that early stage space?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's easy to connect the dots looking backwards as Steve Jobs said in his Mm -hmm. commencement address. During the process, it's messy and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. And you're kind of pivoting around and floshing around. I went to another startup um, and headed up AI product at a company called Conversica Mm -hmm. um, and spent about a year there building a sales chatbot. It was one of those AI companies that didn't have much AI under the hood at the time. Yeah, right. And, you know, so (laughs) we... We were skating to where the puck would be, as they say, and and built a bunch of. We did build a bunch of AI that uh, powered that product eventually, and then uh, AWS called out of the blue, says, "Hey, you want to lead the AI category for us globally?" I'm like, "I don't know what that means, but yes, I'm in. Let's talk." Um, (laughs) And I first week on the job, I'm sitting in a room with Andy Jassy, and he's like, "Uh, "Whose project is this?" And I'm sitting over in the corner. It's like I'm five days in at Amazon, right? And like, yeah, (laughs) me. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, so that, that project was, uh, was called Optimus Prime internally. I don't even know if I'm supposed to say that. I guess it's like, you know, we've expired that uh, project name, who cares, but it was a SageMaker marketplace, the marketplace for machine learning models and algorithms. So the idea is like, let's, let's monetize all this, all these great models and algorithms sitting out there. Algorithmia was out there at the time, and I think they've since shut down and, and and amazon always takes a very marketplace approach to things and Mm -hmm. uh so i launched that project for probably the hardest i've ever worked in my corporate career uh launching Mm -hmm. that and then i was just completely Mm -hmm. dead in december just you know hibernating after reinvent and then uh, microsoft called out and says hey can you come over and run some categories on marketplace for us and i was like okay that's that's another step up let's go I was happy to stay at Amazon, and so I set up this team, and we would basically recruit and, uh, and scale startups for Microsoft, get them transactable in the Azure marketplace, mm. get them to co sell, um, and basically invest money in them—Azure credits, dollars, programs, uh, resources. And mm-hmm. so we set up a lot of the things that are, you know, have made that a multi-billion-dollar business now at Microsoft, and um, both the marketplaces are multi-billion-dollar businesses now. At both the yeah, hey, just, just coming back to the Amazon because you said something really interesting that. Amazon,
0: uh, and, and they're reputed to do this, and the people you know, we know jointly work at Amazon talk about it, This just com- complete customer obsession. And so if you think about the difference at Rocket Fuel, where it was inside Ooh. out and kind of like, hey, we're just building stuff, we'll see how it works. Yeah. How did Amazon, as a very large company, maintain that, laser focus on trying to do what's right for the customer. A lot of people talk about, well, they have yeah. super tight margins, so they got to constantly be innovating, but within really tight expense controls, which if you are at Rocket Fuel, we had more money than God at one point. <laughs> we do it if we want. I think Microsoft also has that challenge. They have so much money, they're kind of bloated. But Amazon was able to retain that kind of really scrappy, we got to be delivering value all the time. Can you maybe speak a little bit in terms of yeah. the difference between maybe Rocket View, Amazon, and Microsoft's view of
1: getting customer input? Amazon's probably the best functioning large company on the planet, um, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. They have lots of different uh, cultural practices and and ceremonies that Bezos has talked about on. You can just search it on YouTube videos. And he was on the Lex Freeman podcast talking about the culture and and some of the the principles of of Amazon. Uh, It felt like a really big, uh, high functioning startup. Um, You know, they start with the PR FAQ, of course, so you write the press release, how Mm -hmm. you're gonna announce it, and you you talk about, you know, the impact on the customer, what the customer pain point is, problem you're solving, and that's the one pager. They call that Mm -hmm. one pager. And then there's the six pager, which is the other five pages of FAQs. And uh, and you go work on these docs for weeks, and you just iterate, iterate. You you might have 30, 40 iterations of this document to try to crystallize Mm -hmm. what it is we're doing, for who, you know, for whom it is, and 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 how we're going to go about doing it, right? And um, mm-hmm. and everybody starts a meeting by reading for ten or fifteen minutes mm-hmm. the document, yeah. and yeah. then you have a discussion, right. um, rather than like here, let me like like kill you a PowerPoint for an hour, yeah, right, uh, and then everybody's just checking their email anyway, like yeah. you no know, silently we're going to read and we're going to have a like a yeah. book report conversation like yeah. on this, so it's just a very high functioning org, and then you know you juxtapose that with Microsoft. Also, a very high-functioning org, but just in a different mm. way. They just go about mm. it in a different way. Uh, the the analogy I like to use, and you'll appreciate this, is it's like the Marines versus the Navy. Mm. You know, like yeah. Amazon, they're like the Marines. They're on the beach. Yeah. They're the yeah. first ones there. Yeah. you know, they're they're digging out the trenches. Yeah. and Microsoft sees what's happening on the shore, but they're just kind of waiting for the right moment and gathering up yeah. all the all the aircraft carrier group and everything. Yeah. But when right. they get there, they come yeah. with the full bundled force of their monopoly yeah. power. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and just overwhelm the competition. Look what's happening to Slack. Slack's growth yeah. is flattened. Any any market Microsoft enters, you know, you're yeah. basically you're, you know, you're praying as a startup that you get acquired instead of yeah. competing with Microsoft. Yeah, I have a
0: very good <laughs> friend who uh just was recently acquired as a startup and he's like, Wow, you know, rung the bell and now just rest invest and yeah. figure out. <laughs> <laughs> to make it work, but it is interesting that Microsoft for I think last week it was for a period of time more valuable than Apple. Uh, oh, yeah. It popped higher, um, so just whatever they're doing, they continue to do it well. And you know, incredible kudos to Satya for reinventing the
1: company and uh, along different dimensions. I had he's, a, there he's for, an amazing leader and like seeing yeah. it from the inside because I was there for yeah. four years. Yeah, uh, just an incredible emph- empathetic, yeah, crystallizing leader that. Um, Probably one of the one of he'll go down as like one of the best CEOs. I think. I, I agree, and and
0: very different than my experience of a lot of the other Microsoft executives when I was there. I described my, Microsoft as being a bit like Machiavelli's Prince uh, when I was there, and I think yeah. when Satya came in or took over, he really changed things. And yeah. the people like you and I both know who've been there through that entire run of Gates to Bomber to Satya talk about like in three years, Satya was able to transform the culture. So. Yeah.
1: I mean, managers there um, take 150 hours of training per year. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. you know, you're basically every every week as a manager taking two or three hours of how to talk to people and how to empathize and you know how to coach and it's just nonstop.
0: The the luxury, um, but yeah. at that, what's super interesting, I think this is where you were going is you were in that you were acting as an internal incubator at Microsoft, helping to recruit and get startups up and going, and so yeah. maybe where we are uh, with our interviews, maybe talk a little bit about at, what were the lessons learned from that experience in terms of looking for startups to help incubate that you've taken at Team Ignite? Because I know you have a very specific criteria that you use as you're filtering um, opportunities, and I think the yeah. audience would love to hear more about how that what you developed at Microsoft, how you've evolved that into Team Ignite, and, and what and will sh- we'll shift into what are you seeing that's working or not working um, with the companies that you're evaluating these days.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of investing is pattern recognition. You know, yep. it's just heuristics. It's at bats. It's kind of like a golf swing or a or a basketball shot. I play basketball. I got, yep. got a game tonight, actually. Um, mm. uh, Still playing too old for it, but... Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, I was lucky enough to have a job where our job, the team's mission, was to figure out what startups to work with and invest in them and help them grow. Yeah. Yep. And so we did that with hundreds of companies, closed lots mm-hmm. of seven and eight figure deals. And we had to, we had to prioritize the entire SaaS universe and, and mm-hmm. then, and then create a tiering system. These are tier one, these are tier two, these are mm-hmm. tier three. Here's what you get if you're a tier two, you know? right. And then seeing which companies succeed and fail was very enlightening as well. we you're like, oh, I really like the startup. And then you just, you keep, you're, you're working with them and they're not growing. You're like, what's going on? Yeah. Um, and you, you start to identify patterns of failure yeah. or success. Right. right. And around that same time, you know, I have all the, the Microsoft equity money coming in, right? They gave me a pretty good package and um, that, that stock tripled while I was there, right? So oh. I'm getting all this money coming in. So yeah. it's just coming right out of my Fidelity account, going into venture funds and syndicated deals and some direct investments. And I did that for a couple of years. And I realized I was having more fun investing and, and talking to mm-hmm. founders than I was running mm-hmm. a team at Microsoft. Mm. And so it's just another like, oh, there's something better. Right. And right. I've been pivoting my entire career. So it's just, oh, it's just another pivot. Yeah. Um, right. And so I, I actually helped a friend of mine raise a, f- a fund. Uh, and I, I spent, you know, probably two or three months trying to figure out, could I get a job in venture? Will somebody give me a job? Yeah, right. And they're not forthcoming. It's very hard to right. get a job in venture. You basically have to come out of Harvard, you know, more or right. less um, yeah. or Stanford. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I guess I got to start my own thing. And that was Team Ignite. And, Initially, it was a syndicate, which means it's a, a pool of investors, a group of investors that ignite startups. That's why we called it Team Ignite. Mm. You know, and our vision mm-hmm. was to have the LPs helping in any way, shape, or form they, they can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we grew that to a couple thousand people in the network, did about fifty investments, and uh, had about a three x markup overall. And 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 you know, the rest is history. We just kind of kind of snowballed that into to more and more investment vehicles and. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I made the transition. That's awesome. So just yeah.
0: going back to that pattern matching. So now what would you say are the the patterns of success
1: and p- patterns of failure that you've uh, identified for startups? You know, it's funny. I was, I've been talking to some VC friends of mine about this on my podcast and just privately. I said something funny to to a pre- pretty pretty well-known VC yesterday. I go, you know, I know it when I see it. He goes, yeah, that's the best answer I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is like a, it is a, Pattern recognition kind of thing. You're, I'm looking at 500 startups to p- potentially invest in every every month. 500 a month. Yeah, 500 a month. Yeah, at least maybe more. Yeah, at least 10 to 20 a day. Right, call it six seven days a week, and and probably more. That's just a rough estimate. And what uh, are you getting into? I mean, that takes an yeah. enormous amount of time. Are you, are you it actually using doesn't. AI tools to? <clears throat> no, that's probably edit, that, or, mm-hmm. that's probably 500 minutes a month. It's probably a minute per startup to decide Holy whether. Smokes. Yeah, it's about a minute. That's all it takes. Uh, I have about six questions I ask them. And then I look at their deck, and sometimes a demo, and I can do that within a minute or two. And then it's just like, you know, within a minute or two, whether or not you want to meet them. And then you go spend 30 minutes with them, you get the pitch, you get the demo, you ask some questions. And you kind of know with 95% charity after the first call, whether or not you want to invest. And then you go do due diligence. Yeah. Um. And you just make sure everything checks out, and then you you wire the check. Now that's a certain strategy. Some some VCs will disparage it and call us a, a spray and pray strategy. Um. Yeah. But it's actually it's actually hard work to go invest in, you know, call it fifty companies a year, about a company per week. That's hard work. That's harder than investing in one company a quarter. It's just more work. You just have to keep tabs on on more startups and and just work harder. <laughs> it's easy to go so, invest in one company a quarter and sit on a board. You know right help me understand are you willing to share the six questions that you ask yeah it's
0: actually publicly facing um okay uh let me pull it up here it's basically you do have a you have a sub stack where you're publishing you also have your own podcast and so if people want to find out more about your strategy or even early stage founders are looking for uh an investment there's lots of ways to to get to know you and in your and how you think about the world
1: yeah teamignite.ventures there's a pitch us link there on my linkedin there's oh. a pitch us link on there uh-huh. and it basically takes you to these questions right what problem okay. are you solving uh-huh. describe the product why are you building this why are you the right team to build this how how's your traction how are your revenues trending month over month for the last six months mm-hmm. how do you acquire customers what's the ltv and cac what's your funding history that's really important you know because sometimes you get a company that burned five million dollars to generate 250k of revenue. That's not a really good burn multiple. How much is committed in this round? How much is left? Who's who's in the round? That's that's important to know because we can't be first check in and and extend your runway for a month. Uh, mm-hmm. you know we're a small check, right? So we have to right. the kind of kind of mid round. Yeah. Uh, demo link and a pitch deck, and that's all it takes to kind of basically do the uh, the front end screening of a startup. In my mm-hmm. in my opinion, there are other questions you can ask. There's lots of variations that other investors use, but that's that's what I use. And then just being Maxio, we care a lot about operating metrics. So when you said
0: LTV and CAC, I'm like, bing! <laughs> uh, are there other metrics that you look at specifically? I think about, and, and maybe you're so early that there isn't a lot in terms of gross retention or net retention, but I've always, where I focus uh, in my um, you know, sort of pattern matching yeah. is that series B, series C, where you have a product market fit, you've got a replicable sales motion that should be taking off, you've got customer base that you're hoping to, Uh, that's going to continue to renew. And so that gross retention and and net retention, are there other metrics for your uh, investment asset class that you're looking at that you would encourage people to really
1: uh, represent? Yeah, so I'm investing in the pre-seed and seed, right? Right. These are early companies. They usually have 100K of ARR up to about a million or two. And so at this early stage, you're not like looking at rule of 40, like you might be looking at in, in, in a series B situation. Yeah, I'm not as concerned on CAC payback. Um, right. Although it should be uh, a lot better than it is at Series B. Your CAC only goes up over time. I don't think you get yeah. better at acquiring customers. So you're kind of looking for, wow, your average sales price is call it a thousand a year, and you could acquire customers for a hundred dollars. Yeah. And you're growing fifty percent a month. I mean, yeah. like, take take my money. Like, th- th- right. this looks amazing. Yeah. Um, versus like, oh, you're growing five percent a month. Uh, you're you you have five months of runway. You spent, you know, $3 million to get to 300 k of ARR. Yeah. I don't think you have product market fit here, right? <laughs> and um, it, it's it sounds facetious, but like being an early stage investor, it's it's kind of like you're just looking for that one or two deals a month that are easy yeses. Yeah. You know, and and so there's like 80, it's like an 80-20 rule, right? 80% mm-hmm. are like easy no's. And then yeah. you have this 20%. And then in the 20%, there's lots of maybes. And like, I don't know, I got to squint a little bit. Uh-huh. And then maybe there's another eighty twenty within that twenty, of yeah. where there's just like an yes. It's yeah. just like oh yeah, this all checks out. The team looks amazing. You know, it's yeah. it's a huge problem with lots of friction. It seems like the right time for this. You couldn't do this five or ten years ago. Um yeah. it's it's a B two B SaaS, so it's ninety percent on the margin. There's no crazy, interesting hidden cogs in there. The product demo looks amazing. This is better than I could ever build it. You know, in all my product years, I built a lot of a lot of crap in my day. You know, it's, it's not, <laughs> something's in market with traction, growing. There's some sort of system of record, a moat, an unfair advantage. Yeah. Um, and at like fair terms, you know, it's not like a fifty cap pre-launch pre-revenue. Yeah. So you, you know, it's a lot of like repetition, right? I run into angels. Right. They're like, I'm just, I'm going to go make my own investments, and I'm like, okay, great. Are you working on this like sixty, seventy hours a week, like I am? Yeah. You know, are you investing in a hundred companies over the next three years? Because that's yeah. what it takes. Yeah. Because you know, this right. is highly, highly risky. Yeah. Uh, There's a highly risky asset class. And you have to yeah. have the right strategy and work at it. Yeah.
0: I think the the my challenge as an operator is always I fall in love with companies, right? The ones I look at like, oh, I mm. can fix that. Right. And I think as an Ooh. investor, you're <clears> on the <throat> other side where you're just saying no. Yeah. And it, it I have just to say so no slice. so
1: much. I have to say no to like marginal things where I'm like, yeah, people, I mean, people we know, mutual friends yeah. that are yeah. you know, raising friends and family rounds. I'm like, yeah. I don't invest yeah. pre launch, pre revenue. Yeah. And then six months later, I'm like, hey, how's your startup? I'm like, oh, yeah, we shut it down. I'm like, yeah, I yeah. would have burned that money. Yeah. You know? Can you say a
0: little bit more? Because again, we're really focused on B2B SaaS. You said something interesting around uh, you look and like B2B SaaS because it's on the margin versus hidden costs. What, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, sometimes you have tech-enabled businesses versus uh, uh, actual tech businesses, like right? Like tech-enabled services. Yeah, right? right. You under, uh-huh. Fundamentally, you have something that... And you can have amazing tech-enabled businesses. Uber is a tech-enabled taxicab company. Sure, right? right? Uh, pretty right. amazing, $100 billion company. <laughs> um, and so they, they can exist and, and generate high margins. But historically, B2B SaaS has been... And I include FinTech in there. Like FinTech mm-hmm. SaaS has been the best... That's where venture capital, that's why venture capital exists, right? Right. Is to to scale these software companies. Now historically, I guess you could argue there's like like Silicon and stuff like that, but yeah.
0: I, I, sorry, and so when you're talking about the margin in this case, you're really talking about the gross margin. The fact that you can build a company, uh, you know, ideally eighty, eighty-five percent gross margin, and you have those uh, the operating costs roll out after that, but then you're trending a lot of profit because you have a yeah. you have a high gross margin versus like a tech-enabled service or an agency where your gross margins are down in the fifteen to twenty percent. You can still eke out a business, but your profit, your EBITDA is going to be, you know five to 10% because you just don't have that much margin left to
1: uh, use across your OPEX. Is that basically what you're arguing? That's it. Yeah. I mean, multi-tenant SaaS, right? Spinning up the end customer uh, is practically free, right? That's what you're looking for. It's infinitely scalable. So once you have product market fit, you know, our, our best companies don't need our help and they're growing so fast that they need, to, uh, they need to raise money just to kind of keep the lights on, right? Hire yeah. the people needed to service those customers and acquire more.
0: Yeah, I think that, that idea of going through those stages of getting product market fit, and then the stage that I'm most interested in is that expansion growth, and then you start to move into the scale. So how do you start to take advantage of the foundation? You have to get to some level of scale, right? And then you are starting to get real leverage out of your investments over time that then chop down to the EBITDA and you can grow profitably. And that is one of the big themes, I think, over the last two years we've seen is the growth at all costs versus efficient growth. Rule of 40 in the world that I operate in is one of those indicators that you're tracking in the right direction. The other one is CAC ratio, which you were alluding to a little bit. like How much is it to, uh, are you spending to acquire every new dollar of ARR? Um, So yeah, yeah. Interesting that, you know, we're just on different ends of that that bridge between the uh, pre-revenue and the the expansion growth. Can you say a little bit as we last couple of minutes, we're focused mostly on the office of the CFO, fintech, the finance function. You've had a background in finance and you you focus in this area. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in terms of the unlocking of the office of the CFO via technology or anything else that uh, you would? you know from your background and experience you would offer for people that might be in that role or that function
1: well i think as an investor um what you look at is you want to figure out what part of the cycle you're in on bundling versus unbundling right and Hmm. you know that's a james barksdale paraphrasing you only make money by bundling and unbundling right so you you're looking at different um different parts of the market and trying to figure out where they're bundling and where they're unbundling like like right now in Africa, they're bundling. They're trying to figure out the platforms to solve the credit gap and build people's credit and underwrite loans. And so we're in some companies there that are bundling all that together, right? That's a bundling strategy. Hmm. Uh, in the US, we're kind of uh, more on the tail end of unbundle, where you're seeing new verticalized SaaS fintechs that are founded to unbundle certain uh, sectors of the, of the fintech stack. So. Right. Like we have a, we have a company called Generous, where they're basically building a neobank for nonprofits, which is an underserved, verticalized in-tech market. um, Right. Where they're, they're, they're underbanked by the banking institutions. Um, They have no loan programs that are especially suited to them. And uh, he he was on the podcast a couple of times already. And they're growing super fast doing this, uh, doing this new loan program. And one of their offerings is a donate now, pay later model, Mm kind of like Klarna. Uh, mm-hmm. where you can donate up, up front to the nonprofit and mm-hmm. pay over time. And nonprofits love that. They get their money up front. Donators love it because they can uh, donate more money uh, and get uh, perks and uh, notoriety or mm-hmm. you know, sh- swag or whatever. And so it's just like, that's another example. There's And there's lots of long long tail examples. Um, we're in another neobank that's serving multifamily property owners, mm-hmm. which historically you think like, oh, well, you just go down to your local bank. But um, they just don't have the size and scale at that regional right. level to uh, properly serve a multifamily portfolio holder. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the kind of stuff you look at is like how can you unbundle it or bundle the market? Right, and and so maybe
0: then. To that point, I, we were both in MarTech and sales Tech. like there are 10,000 vendors in MarTech. And I think part of the challenge is that so that would be a theme of unbundling. Yep. You know, what are the point solutions that you have to use? And I think the challenge is it's been overcapitalized. There are too many solutions and people, especially when times get tough, marketers start to do the is it a must have, nice to have. And they start cutting stuff, and the stuff that gets cut, if it's valuable, gets rolled into a bundled package. And so you yeah. start to see consolidation. I think one of the things that's been interesting in the office of the CFO is the unbundling that's happening right now. It was, um, I was just grabbing this document, I was just looking at this today from Pipers Jeffrey that was talking about the evolution of the office of CFO went from his spreadsheets to point solutions to then you started to have native apps leveraging data integrations to connect to point solutions so you have that unbundling yeah. and you have that connection and really what's interesting right now is we have this broad disruption for that's requiring CFOs to rebundle financial apps and the AI and layering on top as an intelligent layer taking uh, account all the data across these technologies. And so it is very interesting to think about what are the big guys out there gonna do in fintech, Uh, the the oracles of the world that bought NetSuite, um, Intact, who bought, uh, Sage, who bought Intact, uh, Intuit, what they're doing in their marketplace, and is there room still to what you're describing as kind of thin slice, find an opportunity, either a segment um, or a specific capability that you can unbundle, create value for folks, because ultimately, 80% of all software companies get bought. So you're doing it for some yeah. period of time until you get hoovered
1: up by the big guys. Exactly. Yeah, and I think, I think it's, a, it's, it's a strategy where, you know, every platform shift that comes along enables new ways of doing things, right? And so AI mm-hmm. is obviously... Definitely unlocking it as it did ten years ago. It unlocks yeah. this, you know, a, a lot of different neo banking kind of verticals. You know, like you have like the Sofis yeah. of the world and, and, and things yeah. like that, where they had a different kind of slant on how to underwrite loans. Yeah. Um, I think generative AI. You're seeing lots of fintech use cases where they're re- redesigning the entire company around the AI. Right. It's so. Yeah. it, it, it it's like. It's as big as the internet. I think it's, it's it's it just changes the way you can do things. Yeah. yeah. And so now I'm I'm seeing companies now where they're uh, I have a portfolio company. Uh, it's not quite fintech. It's more like data tech. But um, they're using AI to disrupt CoStar, which is a, a big conglomerator of uh, real estate data. Yeah. CoStar historically has had a, a, an army of 1,500 people just calling around, getting data, just calling yeah. around, getting data, getting faxes, yeah. you know, getting emails, and it's like. And this company's like, well, I think we could just use AI to do that. And just redesign the entire operation of the company and just do it at a a tenth of the cost. Yeah, I think that
0: it's interesting. There are at least three ways to think about this revolution in AI. One is what we were talking about a little bit earlier. As a function, what are you doing differently leveraging the tools? So as a marketer, how are you uh, doing marketing differently? You're just gonna have to do that. I think there's this other area that you're pointing to, which is a company is if you are a system of record and have real data, how do you incorporate AI into make sense of the data, the structured and unstructured data, so that you can move from just workflow automation to being an intelligence engine? If you don't have that, someone else is gonna do it. And I think to that point, if you don't, like data is the new oil, people describe it. Right. Like you gotta get super clear in terms of what your data play is, your data strategy, and then what is your intelligence strategy that you layer on top of that. And if you're not starting with data first, you're gonna get screwed. Like if you don't have a core capability around that, in a, and so we have $15 billion of billing and invoicing data that's flowing across our platform. And we've just started, we've released our Maxio Institute growth report for the fourth time and are able to talk about what's happening broadly across our 2300 customer base, that data, it's all anonymous, but that data being aggregated, sliced, yeah. then can in be an input to an AI system that then can make recommendations in terms of not just providing benchmark data, but literally recommendations for how you would optimize different metrics, so LTV, CAC, et cetera. Yeah. It's gonna take us a long time to get there. It's a capability we don't have as a company. Like we gotta go hire those data scientists that we had at Rocket Fuel. We gotta go build the systems and processes. But I do think to your point, that platform AI is forcing everyone to rethink what their core capabilities are and should be and how they're yeah. going to play in a world that's ai ai used to be on the periphery now it's at the core
1: yeah i had somebody on my podcast who's a vp of engineering and we we're having this discussion on um, are there are there technological moats anymore
0: mhm mm.
1: hmm. you know can you actually build a technological moat anymore with with generative ai when you can literally go talk to a computer and start generating code and a 10x engineer becomes a 100x engineer i think what you're going to see is you know ai is eating software generating Mm. ever more software yeah and you're going to see the revenue per employee go up i'd love to see that in the data if you you guys have that is yeah revenue per fte i'm seeing startups that have a million of revenue and no employees maybe a handful of contractors just two founders oh my gosh using ai to automate everything and generate everything and so you know, I was uh, placing a bet with a fellow VC of mine, is one will we see the first Fortune 500 company uh, with, uh, with only e-staff? Hmm. Like, That's, we that, we'll see that at, some, at yeah. some point. It'll just be like, you know, the 10 or so, yeah. you know, functional heads of the organization and everything else is AI underneath. And maybe wow. some contractors. Well, that maybe is, it's five uh, years, maybe it's 10 years, yeah. maybe it's 15, but it will happen. Like, we yeah. will see a, a $5 billion uh, company uh, that's I think that's roughly the entry point for Fortune 500, yeah. um, without any staff, and that's, that's it's a really radical time in in human evolution where we will now be able to spin up the resources because AI is getting 10x yeah. better every year, yeah. right? These yeah, more, yeah. The, the model runs and the complexity of the models, yeah. the price performance of the of the computation, all that's feeding into each other uh, to to generate more software, right? Software that solves our problems at an ever-increasing alarming r- rate. So uh, pretty exciting. Exciting, but also terrifying. <laughs> and I think if you're a young person
0: starting in your your journey in your career and you don't have the time, the opportunity to do what you did, which is go, you know, m- mill about for a bit, explore this, explore that, because companies don't need you because they have AI doing those early stage career type roles like product manager or X, product manager yeah, or Y yeah. or PMM. What do you, and look, I'm old, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go retire and ride my horses. I'm much older than I am. Um, <laughs> what, what, uh, what do you offer as hope or, mm. or other than, I mean, most of our audience is going to be those early stage people that may have the e-staff powered by AI because they are the founders and they're technologically oriented and they're going to, they're going to unlock problems and, and deploy this technology. But for the rest of us, like I was an English major, right? Like, what do you tell the English majors of the world in terms
1: of how are they going to be able to build a career? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's probably like talking to somebody that was working on a farm and trying to explain to them what they're going to mm. do when we don't work on farms anymore. You know, 200 years ago, uh, virtually all of us were involved. 90% of us plus were involved in food production. Uh, maybe there's an mm-hmm. 80%, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and now it's like 1% of us, right? And so I think mm-hmm. it's like trying to talk to somebody on a farm and try to explain the jobs that will exist in the year 2024. And be like, yeah, you'll be, uh, we'll have this thing called YouTube. And you'll be able to create videos and content on it and get paid for it. Well, what do you mean? Like a play? You know, like they they wouldn't even get yeah. it, right? Like, yeah. Who's going to pay you to make a play? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know? Wow. This, there's, well. there's somebody called Mr. Beast. And what he does is he creates videos. Like, hear me <laughs> out. They do crazy things like crash car, like million dollar cars right. into like yeah. fire trucks and stuff. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> and he makes like 10 million dollars a video like like you couldn't even explain it to them right and so yeah. i think that's why they call that the singularity i think yeah yeah you know that 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 phrase um and yeah. i'd recommend anybody read that book singularity is near it changed my life you know we we just can't imagine what life looks like after yeah. uh, ai is sufficiently yeah. advanced yeah it's it's a singularity we just don't know yeah. right yeah Yeah, well, Brian, on that note, wow, what a great (laughs) conversation. Really
0: enjoyed catching up. Learned something from you every time we chat. And uh, appreciate you making some time for us today.
1: Yeah, likewise. Uh, Great catching up. Thanks for having me.